Blog Talk Radio. December 6th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. And here we discuss news, politics, and culture from an individualist perspective. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and I see people over in the Blog Talk Radio chat room. Maybe you're having trouble with the sound. I don't know if you're refreshed. Can you guys hear me over there? Let me know. Someone go ahead and type in the chat room and say, yes, you can hear me. I hope you can. Just started over here. Let me go ahead and check. Looks like I'm connected based on my browser. Call connected, however many minutes, all of that good stuff. No sound for you guys. Okay, no. Okay, so some people are. So maybe you just need to refresh. Uh, let me go ahead and type that in the chat room. Yeah, so welcome to everyone who's joining me over here in the chat room at Blog Talk Radio. If you go over to my blog at don'tletitgo.com, you'll see the title of today's show, Why Are Americans Less Happy? If you look at those program notes, though, at the blog, you'll see also there's a bunch of other topics. So it's not just that, but... This morning, I was over at Washington Post, and there was an article over there that inspired the title of today's show. So I'm going to ask your opinion on this, because there's this poll that the Washington Post article talks about. It's actually a poll from several months ago, if I remember correctly. And then there's another poll. It just so happens that today on Twitter, I saw Ben Shapiro tweeting about a different poll, a Pew Research poll that was just... Uh, released. And the headline of that one is worldwide people divided on whether life today is better than in the past. And in United States, there are, if I recall correctly, more people, not a majority, but more people think that life is not as good today as it was in the past than people who think it's better today. So it was like in the 40s, some odd in in America, 40 some odd percent thought that life today uh, is not as good as in the past. And then 30 some odd percent thought it was better. And I guess there's other undecided people who just are milquetoast and have no opinion whatsoever. Um, in any event, so there's that poll as well. It's, it's not centered on happiness per se, but the, what the Washington Post article does is it goes in to analyze or try, speculate is what I would call it, speculate the reasons why Americans are 
becoming less happy and also, incidentally, they say experiencing more pain. So um, what I want to have you guys do if you want, if you want to call in and let me know your speculations as to why it is that Americans are less happy. Of course, this is assuming it. Maybe you don't believe it. Maybe you don't actually think that Americans are less happy, but indeed that was the result of some research study, Gallup data, etc. What the author of this paper that they talk about in the article, that the article was written by Christopher Ingram, but he's discussing a paper by David Blanchflower of Dartmouth, Dartmouth College and Andrew Oswald of University of Warwick, and they are talking about Gallup data and what Graham does apparently in this, oh, oh, Carol Graham as well. So Carol Graham has this book, Happiness for All, and what she does is she argues that American happiness is faltering as a rational response to growing inequality. And so she thought that the the striking finding, the notable finding, is that markers of well and ill-being ranging from life satisfaction to stress are more unequally shared across the rich and poor in the U.S. than they are in Latin America. And it says low-income Americans are particularly skeptical that hard work will improve their economic situation. Uh, What they were saying, though, in this is they they were making a correlation between people who are rich and people who are college educated, right? So that's another piece of the puzzle. You'd say, okay, well, it's not just that they're rich. It's also that they're college educated. The ones who are college educated or richer tend to still be happier than the ones who are not college educated and supposedly also then poorer. Uh, It is often a, use you know a a good proxy for that so you know what what is the cause of this why would it be is it because of growing inequality right is it monetary inequality Um, and is it that people who are in a lower income situation they don't believe that they can improve it that's another thing that they're talking about and then they also talk about experience of pain bodily aches and pains they asked you in the last month what have you experienced americans says the article were the most likely to report frequent pain with 34 percent saying they experienced it quote often or very often average across all countries surveyed was just 20 percent. so are we just crybabies are we experiencing more pain if we are experiencing more pain why is that Uh, Is it that we expect to be more comfortable here in the United States, whereas in other countries they expect to just put up with more pain? That was not one of the issues that was talked about in Ayn Rand's essay, Don't Let It Go, after which this show is named, right? And in that essay, I've talked about it before on the show, if you're familiar with it, there's an essay called Don't Let It Go in a book by Ayn Rand called Philosophy Who Needs It. It's a collection of essays. And in there she talks about the American sense of life, what are a lot of the you know, sort of touchstones of the American sense of life. It's something that you describe by listing a number of attitudes that Americans seem to have implicitly. She doesn't put in there that we don't expect to be in physical pain, but you could say that, right? I mean, you know, in the United States, we actually expect there to be solutions 
to physical pain. So it might be something that we're going to allow ourselves to note and complain about more because we feel that something can or, or should be done about it. Uh, so maybe there's something like that, you know, you could speculate, but what would be the cause? What would be the cause of that physical pain? One of the things that the author of this Washington Post analysis piece points out says that, you know, the, the reason that we are, are in so much pain is that we do not have the social safety net of people in other countries. I'm quoting from the article now, the nation, our nation's relatively stingy social safety net may be one factor contributing to this exceptionalism. They're using the term exceptionalism to turn on us. We're in more pain. Says many Americans still lack lack access to health care, which is available universally in most other wealthy nations. Right? They got to keep hammering that that we don't have socialized medicine, and therefore we are not keeping up with the Joneses, the uh, wealthy nations around the world. Continuing with the article, the expense of health care, even for those who have insurance, could mean Americans experiencing aches and pains are more likely to tough it out and forego treatment relative to people in other countries. Is that the explanation? Is it some other explanation? And then, of course, the article has to really rub it in. In the United States, health issues remain a major contributor to financial insecurity meaning they likely contribute to some of the declining happiness and financial pessimism seen in the other research surveyed by Blanche Flower and Oswald in the paper they talked about at the beginning. So um, it's income inequality. It's lack of socialized medicine that is causing our unhappiness. Is, is that it? Is that it? So if, if Americans would be just as happy as, Everybody else in the world, we would think life is better if only there wasn't so much income inequality in this country, inequality in general, and if only we had socialized medicine. And then, of course, we'd all be experiencing less pain as well because then we could all just go to the doctor and have the doctor miraculously cure our pain. Robert in the chat room says, income, medicine, we're better off than ever in history. Now, are we really better off than ever in history? I don't know that that's the case. Uh, disclosure, you know, I'm just giving you data points here, data points that we can explain, right? Um, Keith Weiner, an economist, when I posted this on Facebook earlier today, had said that our wages, real wages and real wages of pretty much, I guess, like the average American worker have declined, have declined over the past several decades or so. And of course, prices a lot of a lot of things that we need have also declined, he said, at almost the same rate, but nonetheless maybe it's the differential in the real wage that people are noticing. And if you measure that real wage in particular against the price of gold, then that's when you really see the decline, he said. So there is that just to kind of Listen, uh, John in the chat room says, I'm in pain from listening to that article. I mean, what are they doing? They're putting a particular spin on it. They're taking this data. You know, again, we have to assume that they've conducted an accurate research poll, but I would say it's plausible to believe that Americans are less happy. But call in, call in and let me know 
what your hypothesis is about why it is that Americans are less happy, why Americans are more skeptical about what better, you know, whether life is better now than it was several decades ago. Actually, let me get over to that poll really quick while maybe you're preparing to call in. Let me give you the number, 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. The other poll that just, you know, this is just weird synchronicity that happens like this because this is a different poll, but it just so happened to be published on December 5th, 2017. Pew Research Center, worldwide people divided on whether life today is better than in the past. 50 years ago, it says, the world was a very different place. The United States and its allies were locked in a cold war and it's, and the, uh, with the Soviet Union, personal computers and mobile phones were the stuff of science fiction and much of the world's population had yet to experience substantial improvements in life expectancy and material well-being. Uh, then they think, you know, how much, you know, how far do we think that we've come in the last 50 years. This has made me think that I should have shared that Matchbox 20 song, How Far We've Come as well. But I have a different song to talk about with you guys later at the end of the show. But yeah, how far how far have we come? Pew Research Center put the question to nearly 43,000 people in 38 countries around the globe this past spring. At a country level, some of the most positive assessments of progress over the last 50 years are found in Vietnam, 88% there say that life is better today, India, 69%, and South Korea, 68%. All of these societies, says this Pew Research write-up, they say they have, have seen dramatic economic transformations since the late 1960s, not to mention the end of armed conflict in the case of Vietnam. Majority in Turkey, 65% also share a sense of progress. Of course, they're regressing now, but you know, we'll see the effect in the future of that, right? In some of the more developed countries, this write-up continues. Uh, publics also report that life is better today, including 65% in Japan and Germany, 64% in the Netherlands and Sweden. But not everyone, continues Pew, is convinced that life today is an improvement over the past. Americans are split on this issue. 41% say life is worse, while 37% say it's better. Meanwhile, half or more in countries ranging from Italy, 50%, and Greece, 53%, to Nigeria, 54%, and Kenya, 53%, to Venezuela, 72%, and Mexico, 68%, say life is worse today. So at least half, going all the way up, of course, Venezuela. Only 72% say life is worse in Venezuela. I cannot believe that. And that was in the spring, but everything was going to hell in the spring, too. No excuse. Are people, they've got ostrich heads in the sand or something, if they don't think it's worse in Venezuela. In any event, so that's part of it. I have some people in the chat room actually writing what they would want to say maybe if they were calling up Robert in the chat room says for data on how virtually everything is improving, see pinkers, the better angels of our nature. Now you're talking about facts, right? You're, and I've, I've, there's another book and I'm, the name of it is escaping me right now. It had been recommended by Yaron and it talks about something like rational optimism or, or I think it's something like that. And it gives you the facts about how life today is just so much better in so many ways in terms of your daily life. 
subtitle of this book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, says Robert, is Why Violence have, Has Declined. But if you read the book, it justifies the claim that life has never been better, not just in terms of violence, but almost in every way. And then he also says, given what happiness is, it doesn't require a given income. That's true. And, and we recognize this. Yes. And, and Robert says also The Rational Optimist is the other book. That's what I was trying to think of. That is by Matt Ridley. He says it's also worth reading. So there's a lot of data. There are a lot of facts. And nonetheless, if you look at these polls, people are saying life is worse and they are less happy. Right. And then it just, of course, the Washington Post article takes it upon itself. Let's go ahead and explain it. And how do we explain it? We explain it by looking at income inequality and the lack of socialized medicine. If, if we just became a more leftist country, then everything would be awesome. By the way, you know, at the Washington Post, they have an image editor who doesn't know how to use emojis at all. I just thought I'd add that there. If you actually click through and you see the piece, they've got the upside down smiley face, which supposedly that's supposed to mean that you're sad or you're not happy or whatever. And every time I've ever seen this used, it means you're just like over the moon, ecstatically really into something awesome. And so you put the upside down smiley face. These people... Washington Post, they're just out of touch. So maybe the image editor is like of a piece with the rest of the article and it's just a bunch of garbage. This is not why Americans are unhappy. Why do you think they would be unhappy? Why do you think they would be unhappy? Robert in the chat room is just refusing to accept that they're unhappy because they shouldn't be unhappy because that's what the data tells them that look, you know, there's less violence and then life is better in all these different ways. Um, there, there are some facts I could put in front of you, Robert, that at least should make some of us be a little bit worried about the future. We have President Trump in office and he operates on absolutely no principles. He did something good today. Yes, he did something very good today. Uh, at least taken out of context, it's, it's very good. Well, you know, we could talk about that as well, this recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and making plans to move the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. This is something that at least should have been done for a very long time. And we could talk, you know, talk about the timing of this and why is he doing it and, and all that sort of thing. Roger in the chat room is citing another book called Progress by Johan Norberg. Okay, that's fine. So I know that as People who are fans of Ayn Rand, a lot of people who listen to this show are objectivists, like to follow her philosophy. We will look at the facts and say, okay, we're going to draw our conclusions based on the facts. Some of the other facts, though, there are different facts that we could be looking at. Why are Americans, or at least some Americans, less happy? So, for example, one of the kind of criteria, differentiating criteria that was mentioned in this Washington Post article talks about education. So they say declines in happiness have been steepest among Americans with the least education and the happiness gap between the most educated and the least educated Americans has nearly doubled since 1972. 
why would that be? Why is it the education? Now, is the education merely a proxy for income inequality? And so therefore, you know, the more educated, they earn more money. And so therefore, they're happier. It's just all this materialist thing. Or is there something else going on with the education? I do have somebody who's online over here at Blog Talk. If you wanted to actually speak, then you would also press the one key. So if you're just on hold and you haven't pressed the one key and I don't see my little question icon telling me that you want to ask a question or, or make a comment, then I'm going to respect your privacy as, as a kind of a privacy. I don't know. Do I, would I call myself a scholar or an expert of any kind? I don't know. I, a, a privacy valuer. How about that? I'm a privacy valuer. And so therefore I would respect yours and not unmute you unless you do that. So if you are calling in, again, the number is 760-888-5817. You want to press 1 if you want to ask a question or make a comment. Josh in the chat room says the gap. Always with the gap instead of actual increase or decrease. Well, overall, it seems like it is decreasing. And particularly if you integrate it with the Pew Research study that says that more Americans, of course, I don't know, you know, 41% versus 37%. Was that so statistically significant? But it is disturbing that, say, over 40% of Americans think that life is worse today, especially if there are these different factors to look at, all of the factors that are in Ridley's The Rational Optimist, in Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature, showing that violence has declined in society. Uh, Progress by Johan Norberg. These books, right? There's a lot of evidence showing you that life is better. You should feel good. Why are you not feeling good? Is it simply because there is inequality? Even if you are doing better, the inequality itself galls you and you can't stand it. It's interesting because it brings up this question that randomly somebody asked me Yesterday, um, there's an example in Leonard Peikoff's book, Objectives and the Philosophy of Ayn Rand, and it's under this section where he talks about uh, something like, you know, that emotions are a product of reason or a product of thought, that emotions are not primary, it's the thought that's primary, and you can give various examples. So, you know, one thing you could say is we'll look at these, this, you know, these studies and the different figures about happiness and whether life is better and we will use thoughts that we have based on our particular value hierarchy and what it is that we think is good and bad and would make somebody happy or unhappy or would think you know make people think life is better or not better and we would impute that on the study so if you know if we take the study as given that most of these people they either are less happy Uh, And in particular, uneducated Americans are finding themselves to be less happy versus the more educated, uh, that more Americans are thinking that life is worse and that actually in Europe, people are in, you know, in some countries in Europe, the majority thinks that life is better now than it used to be. Why would that be? Why would that be? And I would come at it from my particular philosophical framework and start speculating as to some reasons. And I'm going to do that in a minute if nobody calls in and presses the one key and, and speculates yourself. I, you know, I want to give you guys a chance to chime in. It's very easy for me to kind of step in and say, here, let me tell you what I think about this. And I did that on Facebook, actually. So 
So don't look, call in, tell me what you think. But, you know, there's this data and then there's the reaction and the evaluation and the analysis of the data. And I would say that this Washington Post article, besides demonstrating a lack of understanding of emojis entirely, also shows a lack of any sort of objective analysis because clearly if they're coming in and they're explaining this data solely because we have in the United States failed to institute leftist enough policies, right? We haven't equalized income or resources for people. We haven't instituted universal health care as they like to call it. Slave medicine is maybe the the best way to call it, slave medicine. Uh, We haven't instituted slave medicine here. Because we haven't done that, that's why. People are having all this stress and everything else. Let me just give you another fact, and then you'll start to see the direction that I'm going. The other fact is another in the program notes that just shared it the other day, and it just happened in my mind to integrate with this golden crust ceo killed himself over tax debt fears of probe the founder of golden crust jamaican beef patty empire killed himself amid fears the feds were investigating him for evading millions of dollars in taxes the post has learned a family member told detectives that lowell hawthorne 57 admitted the huge tax debt to some of his relatives and was, quote, acting funny and, quote, talking to himself in the hours before his suicide, a law enforcement source said Sunday. Surveillance video also shows the meat pie mogul shooting himself in the head at his office inside the Golden Crust Bakery and warehouse in the Bronx, said the source, who was briefed on the NYPD investigation into the shooting. Before the shooting, the video shows Hawthorne speaking with a pair of workers who left the room both of whom were crouched down when they later returned to his office, sources said. It was unclear if they saw Hawthorne kill himself, but one of them could be seen making a cell phone call, which a source said was to 911. He employed dozens of relatives at the business he started in 1989. The source said he left a note in which he apologized to his family. Younger brother Milton Hawthorne, 55, met cops uh, in response to the 911 call, blah, blah, blah. Let's see. Uh, Lowell was a married father of three sons and a daughter, was found on the floor, single bullet wound to the head, handgun lying nearby. He was a Jamaican immigrant, started Golden Crest with a single fast food eatery on East Gun Hill Road in the Bronx and opened 16 more across the city before launching a franchise operation in 1996. The company now has more than 120 outlets in nine states sells its beef patties in more than 20,000 supermarkets as well as to the city school system, St. Penal system, U.S. military, according to a news release issued last year. In August, Hawthorne was slapped with a proposed class action suit alleging he cheated as many as 100-plus workers at the Golden Crust plant out of overtime pay. The suit, fairly common in the food service industry, remains pending in Manhattan federal court. So, Two items there. He committed suicide. We know that he was facing this lawsuit about supposedly cheating employees out of overtime pay. And we also know that he admitted a huge debt in taxes and that he committed suicide. 
Does that integrate at all with what I see? Uh, John in the chat room says one of the reasons maybe is that humans see less future in which their labor slash contribution is necessary. It could be that. So some people, they see automation and they worry that their jobs are going to be made superfluous, that, you know, that all you need is a computer or some sort of a robot to perform the task that you were doing before. You know, this is even true of low-level attorneys, that they are now starting to replace a lot of the entry-level, lower-level work that some attorneys do with computers, I guess data analysis that computers can do. Josh in the chat room says, there's very unobjective feelings in the world. Roger in the chat room says, progress has a way of feigning ease. John in the chat room is more on the track of something that I had in mind. John Roberts, he says, if there is one thing that has the potential to ruin an individual's capacity for happiness, it is four years of higher education. Okay, that's, you're, you're getting somewhere because you're mentioning the education, but study said that the people who had had the higher education were actually happier. Josh says they don't believe the violence has declined. Okay, right. So there's a whole lot of news. If you look at some of the news sources, I actually don't like to look at, particularly at local news very often. Local news right now is actually pretty distressing because local news in Southern California is fires, 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 houses being destroyed, Getty Museum in Los Angeles may be threatened by a fire. That was early this morning, the news. I hope that they've got that under control. The winds have died down as far as I know right now. So I'm hoping this gives the firefighters a bit of, you know, relief, a, a kind of a window where they can fight this thing and, and get it under control. News can definitely make you unhappy. Tom in the chat room says that. Yeah, news can, and, and it can exaggerate the risk that you will be subjected or victim of violent crime. That's true. So maybe people believe that. But let's go back to the education piece, right? So John, he says, yeah, four years of higher education can make you unhappy. That's true for people like us, right? Generally, I think if people are fans of my show, you would describe them at least as non-leftist. You are probably not a big fan of my show if you're, although leftists are, well, you know, please call in and let's debate some stuff. That's fine. Maybe you do agree with the Washington Post, that you think the reason Americans are unhappy is because we just haven't really gone enough in the socialist direction yet. We haven't equalized incomes the way they have in some countries in Europe. We haven't instituted socialized medicine, but every advanced Western wealthy country around the world has socialized medicine. How dare we be the last holdouts in the world? So maybe you think that. Right. Maybe maybe and you want to have a debate about that. But what I want to kind of probe here is is that they're just taking this data. You know, people in these groups are less happy than people in other groups and people generally are less happy. And they are, you know, sort of imposing on it, superimposing on it their particular political agenda, which is income equality and socialized medicine. I, I like slave slave medicine. Um, we'll have to call it, we'll have to call it slave medicine. But 
in any event, that's that's their take. What I'd like to do is say, okay, let's look at it from a different perspective. And John leads me down the track here, but it's it's a little bit in the wrong direction, right? We have to explain why the people who went to university are on the average happier than the ones who did not go to university. That's what the article was telling us, that if you look at the data, it shows that those people were happier. Now, from our perspective, from a non-leftist perspective, and you know, Jordan Peterson is excellent on this if you want to talk about the leftist culture on campuses and, and him, you know, he and Camille Pagley have great discussions about it. It's so leftist on campus right now that anybody who doesn't drink the whole total leftist Kool-Aid, nobody's, nobody's going to call me because I use that term. Um, anybody who doesn't agree with the leftist political agenda, those people are going to potentially be miserable, especially if you're in the humanities department, any of the social sciences, psychology in a four-year university. Yeah, you could be miserable because you're going to have these leftist professors trying to indoctrinate you for four years and feeling like you can't speak your mind. Of course, Jordan Peterson encourages you to speak out and he's still very, I would say, optimistic about people being able to speak out and say what they actually think in classes and write what they actually th- you know, think in papers and still do decently well. I've had the experience of being graded down for my views one time at UCLA Law School. Rest of the time, I, I don't remember having any professor actually give me an inferior grade because of my, you know, views expressed or anything. So it, it'd be good if that's if that's still the case that they'll always respect a good argument. And if you are just honest and write the paper that you're excited to write about and say what you actually think that you can still do well in today's universities, but nonetheless, you know, you, you can look around at your fellow classmates and get very discouraged because they all seem to agree with these leftist professors that well, if, you know, if you are a non-leftist, in the university today, you find yourself in a very small minority. So I could see while John in the chat room, he's saying, yeah, you know, there's nothing more that's going to make you less happy than spending all this time in a university. And imagine also spending time on a faculty in a university. That can also be similarly depressing for people, depending on, on where you are and what the atmosphere is like. So for us, right, when we look at it, we say, oh, that would make you less happy spending time. And yet the poll here is saying that the people who have, you know, who are more educated are more happy. Why is this? Cobra says, Amy, we went to college when it was not so bad. I mean, I remember having just really vicious debates. Uh, Josh in the chat room says, is less educated, less left? Maybe, right? So now Josh is getting more on the track. What the people who in the universities, you know, what they've experienced, what they've been told is they should expect the way that things are going. They actually should be happy about the way things are going. So, for example, if we have an economy that is more redistributive, that the government is accounting for a huge amount of the spending in our economy, so much more so than ever before, um, that medicine is 
you know, suffering, suffering from an increasing degree of enslavement over time. The most recent and egregious example being Obamacare. And now I would say the failure to repeal it by the worthless Republicans and president. Um, You know, all of these things are things that they've been told in university are admirable, noble and good and that they should be happy about. Now, it can't really make you happy if you if you're able to see, for example, that an increasingly status government and an increasingly enslaved medical profession, if you are able to experience it, you know, sometimes firsthand the effects of this on you and your values. It's going to be hard to evade, but there is a vast amount of indoctrination. So when I look at that data and they say, oh yeah, um, the more educated, the people who are more educated are happier than the people who are less educated. When I look at it from my perspective and what I know about what goes on in the universities and what I know about people might take from universities and internalize when they're evaluating the world around them, right? When I look at those things, I think, oh yeah, of course the quote more educated are going to find themselves happier because they have been taught that they should be happy with big brother taking over every aspect of our lives. Whereas the people who haven't undergone the indoctrination from the leftists in the universities they still have a lot more in them of what Ayn Rand called the American sense of life, this implicit sense that an American is an individual entity, not some ward of the state. To the extent that you are college educated today, you are joining more with the so-called European sense of life, as, as Rand talks about in that essay, Don't Let It Go. Um, and you see yourself as belonging to a state in a certain way. And then the only question is, is there a, you know, a state that's better versus worse? So, you know, is it Spain versus Catalonia? Which, which state is going to be better for me to quote belong to? That's the only question. Whereas Americans are, you know, traditionally see themselves as independent entities, people who can make of their lives what they want to, that it's only up to them. And they will instead, instinctively rebel, you know, they, they will defy any attempts to control them and dictate their lives, and they will be upset about it, at least a lot more implicitly, whereas those who have gone through college education have it beat out of them. So you see how you can take this data, this data from this poll about who's less happy and who's more happy and stuff, and you can impute onto it your own speculations about why it is, right? So they say, right, the Washington Post analysts say that the reason everybody is less happy is because of income inequality and that college education is simply a proxy for the fact that they have higher income. I mean, talk about the, you know, in a a way they're revealing sort of the Marxist agenda, right? Just that happiness is conditioned by how much money you have. And as Robert says in the chat room, you know, what we know about happiness ourselves as, you know, people who have been students of Ayn Rand's philosophy and and agree with her, we realize that happiness isn't necessarily tied to money. There's a lot of 
cool things that you can do with money, some of which can make you happy, right? But it's it's not this necessary connection, this automatically necessary connection that a Washington Post author who's writing this quote analysis might jump to that conclusion and say, just knee jerk, oh yeah, of course Americans are less happy because here incomes are so, you know, less equal than they are in these other countries. And that's really the answer. So, you know, that's just one. Now talk about the pain aspect for pain. I would say, you know, a couple things. I mean, there's a few things you could say. We Americans were tough. We're stoic. Yeah, we have pain. We just tough it out. I, I, I've had like, what was it? I had my trainer. She took three weeks off to go on vacation. Um, she lives in Poland. So she, you know, she'll take this big vacation once a year and be gone for a few weeks. So three weeks off and then she comes back and she's six. So it's a fourth week. So I missed four weeks of my strength training. And there were a few days in there where I was just in excruciating pain, the kind that keeps you awake at night. You can't sleep and everything. Did I take a single painkiller? No, I didn't take a single, I'm kind of scared of painkillers right now, first of all, but a lot of times you just don't, you know, as Americans, we just, we tough things out. So maybe, maybe we're just tough. So there's my one, I'm totally projecting because that's just me. I, I just don't take painkillers. So maybe there's that. Uh, the other thing in terms of, you know, why we have more pain, we as Americans, even if we aren't lucky enough to be able to look at things, I was going to say lucky, are, do we do we feel happy that we're able to look at the world and see that it's going to hell in a status bucket sometimes? I don't know if that's is that an advantage. You you can actually understand what's going on in the world better if you have been educated through Ayn Rand's ideas and the ideas of some of the other better libertarian thinkers, right? So you can look at the world, you can understand it, you understand the value of freedom and of respect for individual rights and you understand how bad things are when at best you elect some pragmatist in chief to be the steward over this country that was once founded on the principle of individual rights, right? So, you know, we look at that, we say, yeah, there's going to be a lot of distress and it could manifest itself in physical pain that we experience more. So there is that explanation as well. There's a third explanation that occurred to me, and it's because I'm kind of in this world of I've had back surgery and, you know, cures for pain and all this stuff. We're more sedentary than we used to be in the last several decades ago. Why there's a lot more automation. Now you don't even have to vacuum your house. You buy this Roomba and you set it off this little robot thing. I don't have one of those, by the way, Uh, but you can, right? You can get this little robot that'll do your vacuuming for you. And of course, you know, we're dishwashers and, washing machines and dryers and all those wonderful household appliances that make just daily living less physical. And a lot of our work has become less physical, more intellectual, more sitting at desk. We're more sedentary. And we are as human beings, if we don't get up and move around, more likely to be in pain. So that's not even a philosophical, you know, I'm not going to say it's bad, right? In a way, it's good that we have the ability to be more sedentary. But what do we do? We have to adjust to it. We have to realize that as human beings, we are not just 
you know, kind of these brains sitting at computers that we also have to kind of get up and move around and be a physical body and take a break every so often that we have this animal side of our natures. Uh, I don't, so that's another observation as to why, but why does the Washington Post tell you that you might be in more pain now? It has to do with your lack of access to socialized medicine, to enslaved medicine. Now, Robert in the chat room, he says, happiness requires knowledge, wisdom, and the freedom to act. If people are less happy, they must be less wise and or less free. He says, are people more free? He says, yes, in terms of opportunity. No, in terms of goals, which are often irrational and guilt often imposed by bad ideas. Are they really more free in terms of opportunity, given how hard it is, for example, to start a business up in the United States than it used to be? Uh, Can you tell that to this Golden Crest CEO who comes here as an immigrant and builds up a successful business from scratch and ends up killing himself over tax debt and fear, I guess, of a probe related to the lawsuit about overtime wages, which would be an unjust restriction to put on him anyway, that he's got to pay overtime wages, even if his employees don't demand it. Are you really more free? Some people are more free, certainly. Um, You know, are there a lot more opportunities for women now than there were decades ago? More careers are open to us and things like that. Are there a lot more options about what you can do with your life? Yes, people don't generally they're not generally even expected to stay with the same company, working for the same company throughout the course of their careers anymore. So there's more mobility. There's all kinds of options about things you can do to specialize in your lives. Um, There's different types of lifestyles you can do and still contribute productive labor and earn money to sustain your life with telecommuting and all the technology. So in some ways, sure, But in other ways, there are a lot of people who are bumping up against Big Brother in trying to carry out their goals. So, for example, it's been a few years since I've spoken to him about this, but a surgeon that I know in Southern California, he did, um, he probably still does it, uh, a certain type of weight loss surgery. And the whole question was, was this particular type of surgery that he specialized in, right? So he develops this whole expertise and comparative advantage doing this one particular type of surgery. And in one fell swoop, perhaps Obamacare was going to make it that he could not make a living anymore. Right? And Robert says, there's so many ways to start a business these days. The question isn't how you can start one, but which opportunity to take advantage of. You know, to me, this argument is a little bit like, well, you know, even if Big Brother is clamping down, we can, via technology, always evade it. But the necessity to try to figure out and evade it, Just the fact that it's there, even if you spend as little time as possible thinking about it, I think it's going to prey on you a little bit. And if you are not a person who is indoctrinated in the universities to accept this as a way of life, it's just inevitable that Big Brother is going to get bigger and bigger and control more and more of your life and that your rights are garbage in the courts and legal system of today that is going to prey on your mind if you're at all aware of this. And, yeah, 
He says, don't stop fighting and don't let them stop you either. either. Sure. But is it going to potentially affect your overall happiness? And isn't it really the strongest and best people who are going to be able to maintain a positive sense of life in that environment? One of the things I talked about with this guy when I first read this story, this Golden Crest CEO, there was no John Galt, you know, to come to him and say, hey, you don't need to take this. This is unjust. This is not what you deserve. And there is some place for you to go to be able to live a happy life, producing things for people who will value you and trade value for value and not come here and telling you that because you are successful, you thereby have a mortgage upon you from society and your fellow man. And and the debt is going to be called on for, you know, for you to pay you and your family and everybody else to pay pretty soon. This poor guy. So, yeah, I, I see Robert and there are, you know, many people within the objectivist movement who do a much better job of remaining completely optimistic and, and happy all the time. But at the same time, there are, you know, some people who find themselves a little bit more struggling, even when they've got the knowledge available to them within objectivism. And then imagine the people who are out there who just have their sense of life to guide them, but they know they sense that something is terribly wrong, that in America, we are not treated as the independent entities that we used to be. So, yeah, you know, I understand that all the evidence shows you that life for individuals, even today, is better. Nonetheless, you know, and, and again, we could talk about this concept that I've brought up in the past with respect to you know, sort of evaluating the way things are, are going in the world. And we could say, okay, life, there, there's like three different curves that we could talk about. Because I like to talk about this difference between velocity and acceleration. So bringing my little amateur physics knowledge here. So there's a velocity in the direction of life getting better. So you have your little velocity vector. It's going in the direction of life getting better. At the same time, amount of statism, which you could say is an acceleration in the different direction. So it's getting right. So the acceleration is in the negative direction. And there's a lot of us who are capable of acknowledging the acceleration. And if we're not careful, we focus on the acceleration in the direction of statism and therefore of death, right? I mean, that's the ultimate of what statism does. Statism kills. And as objectivists or fans of Ayn Rand or people who have studied a lot of the other libertarians, you recognize that statism is death, that statism is growing, regardless of the fact that if you look at a lot of the concrete things that actually affect our daily lives, that those things are getting better, right? So there's that. So then we could talk about, okay, so statism is growing, and then something I've discussed in the past with, you know, how to, how's the fight going for actually reversing that trend of statism? Yeah. So, so now we could look at the velocity vector of statism. So statism is increasing and yet anti-statist ideas are becoming more popular, at least in certain ways. And there might be reason for optimism 
if you focus on that, right? So what do we do, right? We're supposed to focus on two things, that life actually is getting better. And, and the, Euron Brook is so good at this, right? So focus on that life is getting better. I can, for example, I'm going to share with you at the end of the show, I just the other day, because of technology and all the great social media and contacts that I've made, people, this guy, Stephen, I've never met, uh, but I know he's in the objectivist movement and he's got a lot of cool stuff. Uh, I got, learned about a whole new artist and I've been watching videos on YouTube and everything else right at my fingertips. I can learn about a new artist today and I don't even have to go to a record store and buy an album. And st- I click I'm a few clicks and then I'm listening to new music and I can immerse myself in that whole world. And then a few more clicks and you can go buy a concert ticket. And I mean, it's like, boom, you're done. Um, it's incredible, right? So you can focus on those things, all the opportunities and options that are available to you in your daily life. And you can also focus on the growth of the spread of better ideas and try to look for some sort of objective markers of that. And I've cited Alex Epstein's success with his book as part of that, that you can look at. You can look at a lot of the programs that the Ayn Rand Institute has done with the essay contest and everything else and see signs of that as well. Euron is growing his show, and that could also be seen as as a sign of, uh, you know, success spreading the right ideas in, in the culture. So, yeah, we could focus on those two things and not focus so much on the growth of statism, but the growth of statism is in the news all the time, and depending on what you actually try to do in your life, there are people in their lives who, for instance, you know, heaven forbid, you actually want to do what you want with your own property, right? Heaven forbid you want to actually do what you want with your own property. Josh in the chat room says, I'm assuming that only objectivists are listening, not just people who are just getting introduced to Ayn. I don't only assume that, but I do have to speak from my own context. Um, Yeah, I I do that. Uh, But yeah, in any event, um, oh, are are you talking about that? Oh, there's a certain saying that I was using was that? Oh, Corey says, don't talk about John Galt. Sometimes I will talk about John Galt, but hopefully not in a way that gives too much away. I Probably I did. So that is a, uh, a risk sometimes. It's, it is part of the culture out there already. A lot of people talk about John Galt in any of the articles that you read. But yeah, it'll, it'll sometimes come up in the show. Sorry about that if I did give a spoiler. Um. In any event, so what do we focus on? We can try to focus on the concrete things that have made our lives better, even though the state has grown in its power and influence over our daily lives. And one consolation about that growth of the state and its power and spread and influence and debt and all the other things is there has also been a growth in the spread of the better ideas, the ideas that would combat that growth of the state. And so, you know, who's going to win the race first? We see the velocity and acceleration in competing directions. I'm hoping that I've drawn a picture for you guys using words in a way that makes clear what I have in my own mind. But, you know, I could see a graph. I could... I, you know, I should probably be doing one of those whiteboard talks on video or something and draw my little 
vectors and acceleration and everything else. Because I make a, I'd make a horrible mistake. So you can assume that I've drawn my velocity vectors and acceleration curves and everything else exactly perfectly correctly. However, you people who know physics are in, envisioning them in your own mind. Uh, but everybody else, you know, there's there's velocity, which is just in what direction are you moving and how fast. And then there's acceleration. What is the change in velocity? And I would say, yes, in velocity, we're still moving in the direction of life getting better. But statism is slowing the rate at which life can possibly get better and eventually will overtake it and make life get worse, right? It'll eventually start making us go in the opposite direction as it has, for example, in Venezuela. Um, so statism will do that. And then the question is, can a, another aspect of acceleration, which is the growth and the spread of anti-statist ideas, can that overtake the trend and keep life going in a positive, better direction before statism overtakes? That's the way that I see the whole issue. And so, therefore, when I look at this data about happiness versus unhappiness, I explain it from that perspective. I don't explain it from their leftist perspective, which is if only we solved the income inequality problem, if only we instituted Universal health care, a.k.a. socialized medicine, a.k.a. slave medicine, then everything would be awesome. That's what they are trying to tell us. Um, I've only got just, you know, that, of course, that one concrete about the Golden Crest CEO, but it's a particularly poignant and eloquent example of the sort of thing that makes a real person in the real world trying to achieve real goals unhappy living today that the state is stealing from him and telling what, you know, telling him what sort of agreements, what sort of contracts he can make with his employees, that he's, you know, going to be subjected to the expense and stress and cost and, you know, cost and time and money and convenience and everything else of a lawsuit simply because he dares to have a certain sort of contractual agreement with his employees that they don't approve of. Selfishness in the chat room says, sounds like a, a train wreck, the picture that I'm uh, painting. It, it's not necessarily a train wreck, right? It's, it's just a question of who's going to win the race. Are the statists going to win the race or are the anti-statists going to win the race? And right now, it seems like the statists are winning the race, even though some people might think that we have a reprieve in the guise of our pragmatist in chief. But, you know, I think it's, it's a moderate reprieve at, at best. And we've got to see more evidence that real non-statist, actually principled non-statist ideas are having an effect in politics before we can get really more optimistic about that. There, in the popular culture, we have seen the popularity of non-statist ideas increase. And that's the thing that you can focus on and get a bit of optimism from. Like I said, the success of Alex Epstein's uh, book the fact that libertarian ideas are, you know, it, at least in some shows on Fox being a little bit more accepted. Stuff like that. Uh, Robert in the chat room says, one advantage the status have is that their ideals include self-sacrifice, so they ostensibly don't care if the fight makes them miserable. Exactly. So you go to a university 
and you've had four years of indoctrination telling you that you should expect to be miserable. You know, I meant to pull it out. There's this letter that a woman, I believe, who had been a student of Immanuel Kant and had been an adherent of his philosophy, she, it's this famous letter, if you've you know, studied some intro philosophy, you maybe heard about this, maybe not because your professor, professor doesn't want you to know about it. But this woman wrote and said, you know, I've been following your ideas basically to the letter uh, that, of course, the thing that makes an action good is that it's performed out of duty. That's what Kant taught you, right? And she says, I'm miserable. And, you know, I, I, it's been so long since I've actually seen the wording of it that I, I can only very vaguely paraphrase it, but, you know, complains, I'm, I'm miserable. And I think he wrote her back and said, yeah, basically you shouldn't expect to be happy if you're practicing virtue. And I don't remember if she went on to commit suicide or not. It was a horrible, tragic situation. This woman was miserable and conscious tells her, yep, that's what you should expect. That's what you're told to expect if you by what a lot of the leftist professors are telling you at the university, that the good is that which is performed out of duty, that the good consists in self-sacrifice, and that, yeah, if you are becoming a ward of the state, if, if you are just a pawn of the state, if the state is just taking all of your data and all of your money and having you spend all sorts of time and jump through all sorts of hoops just to pursue your dreams, that's to be expected of you. And it's in service of this larger ideal, which is that you're going to help the needy. You're going to serve your fellow man, those people around you who are in need. That's to be expected. And so at least for a period of time, you can pretend that you're happier, that you're less unhappy than everybody else who's been knee-jerk you know, sort of reacting to the enslavement around them. And they just say, no, no, I'm actually not more happy. For some reason, I don't like the state controlling every aspect of my life. They've been bumping up against, you know, the, the state and a lot of the things that they want to do. Robert says, we expect happiness when we fight and do not sacrifice. So we've got limits on how much pain and misery we'll accept in the name of fighting evil. Yes, we do. And then what we have to do is we have to keep that in mind and continue to draw those boundaries and continue to, as Rand talks about, don't focus on pain or danger, enemies a moment longer than is necessary to fight them. This is something that for some people comes more easily. It could have to do more with psychology than necessarily with philosophy. Uh, but that's the thing to aim for and, and try to remember that is the proper goal, which is that you don't focus on these things any longer than is necessary to fight them. And, and fight them would include whatever you need in terms of time to understand and all, all that stuff, but not not to focus too much on the creep of, of statism and not, not to let it hurt you to too great an extent. Let me go ahead and take a quick musical interlude and then I'm going to look at my program notes which you can do also over at don'tletitgo.com collect my thoughts here a little and, and figure out how I'm going to cover all the rest of the awesome stuff on those program notes in the time remaining okay I'll be right back
Okay, everybody, I am back. And like I said, I've invited you to go over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com where I've got the program notes. Of course, if you want to call in, invitation is still open. The number is 760-888-5817. If you're over there at the blog, you'll notice that the next thing I've got in the notes is a YouTube kind of, you know, I, I insert it. Whenever you just paste a YouTube link into my WordPress blog that I've got over there, it automatically just gives you a, a live YouTube window that you can play. Yaron Brook just did his first news briefing yesterday afternoon, and he says he plans to do it every single day. He recently had had a back surgery, so I'm hoping he's still going to be up for it. But he, look, he looks like he's doing really well. He looks strong and everything. And he was talking yesterday about some of the news stories. And uh, I was going to say a couple things. I don't want to repeat stuff that he said. Um, he spent most of the show talking about the, you know, the gay wedding cake baking case that just came before the Supreme Court. And there's just one thing that I wanted to mention because he was talking about the danger of the court and what, what's the court likely to do if the court is going to uphold the baker's freedom to decide whether he's going to, bake this cake for a homosexual couple's wedding, right? If they're going to uphold that, they would do it on the grounds of either free speech or religious liberty. And he said, you know, both would be a travesty. What you need to focus on is you need to focus on a person's right to do what he wants with his own property. And you could also say liberty, uh, right, to take the actions according to your own judgment. Those are the sorts of principles that the court should resort to. But the court, the Supreme Court, over decades has painted itself in this nasty little corner. And it appears that the only two grounds on which they could uphold the right of the baker to decide whether to bake this cake is either in free speech, that somehow baking, making this cake for the homosexual couple's wedding, that that would be an exercise of speech and you shouldn't be forced to speak in a way with which you disagree, uh, or religious liberty. And the court has upheld things on the grounds of religious liberty in the past. So, for example, you can get an Obamacare exemption on religious liberty grounds, and that's horrible. Why can't atheists get an exemption on philosophical grounds? It's because we're not mystical, and therefore the religious people who are mystical, they can get their exemption. Ugh. Um, but one thing that he talked about, and I just want to draw out one more implication of it, he talked about the danger of confusing speech with action. You know, baking a cake is this action that you take. So you could say it's an exercise of liberty. It's, it's an exercise of your use of your property rights, you know, use and disposal of your property. And it's not speech per se. And there's a lot of things that the court has been trying to shoehorn into the idea of speech, making it speech so that they can protect it. Um, part of the danger of confusing speech with action, you can see in the free speech debate on campus today, right? So what is it that the leftists who are trying to shut down the non-leftist speakers on campus, what do they say? They say if Ben Shapiro comes and says whatever it is that he's going to say, which is usually just in favor of free speech, it's, you know, it's pretty benign stuff, a lot of it. Uh, but when, you know, one of these non-leftist speakers, when they speak on campus, their speaking itself is violence, Right. And that's why they think they are justified in reacting and, you know, to speech in a violent way or preventing that speech from taking place using physical force. They think they're justified in it because the speech itself they see as a violent act. 
So one thing you could say just to draw a further implication from uh, from what you were talking about yesterday, yes, it's definitely the, a danger that the court is wading into this area and that they're taking something that is an action, an exercise of your property rights or of your right to liberty, and, and they're turning it into free speech. You're confusing these two. And like I say, one of the implications of that is what we're seeing on campuses today where people see speech itself as action. So not only are, you know, the court saying action is speech, now we've got the leftists on campus saying speech is action, and therefore that's why we're justified in taking action in return. So that's one of the things. Um, the other thing is, you know, what is the court doing with this, right? The, the court in this kind of case is doing the same sort of thing that it's doing in the realm of privacy that I've talked about before. Uh, if if you look at the Griswold versus Connecticut opinions, there was, I believe, a concurrence talking about how each of the different rights that are listed in the Bill of Rights give rise to emanations. And then they talk about emanations from penumbras. There's penumbras around each of the rights and stuff. And when I was first you know, sort of tackling privacy again, you know, earlier I was trying to draw in words, but, you know, I have this picture in my mind of the vectors and, you know, acceleration. So similarly in this realm, I had this graphic that I used to draw and you could see, imagine a whole square and a whole big square is a, you know, representation of all the things you should be able to do if your rights to property and liberty and contract and all those things were protected as principles. This is all the stuff you should be able to do. So the Bill of Rights, if you just take them as this concrete list of stuff, there would be, you know, like circles, small circles, maybe there's nine of them or something, you know, within this square, and those concrete things would be protected. And then the court says, well, no, that's not enough. There's like these penumbras, these sort of vaguely shaped areas around them. So they don't just want to have a concrete list. They want to have these penumbras around each of the Bill of Rights. So there's a little bit more still doesn't give you all the protection as if a principle. So you can imagine, you know, sort of like a bunch of fried eggs. <laughs> Each of them are the, you know, the penumbras around the Bill of Rights. So the yolk is like the the Bill of Rights concrete. And then the, the white part that's all weird and amorphous shaped or whatever is around it. But nonetheless, imagine that your fried eggs do not account for the entire area enclosed by the box, the box being the thing that would, you know, be all of your rights protected as principles. Courts won't give you that. That's, this is going to be another example of it. And it's really sad that, you know, for them to find a baker's ability to refuse, bake a cake, in order for that to happen, they have to locate the freedom within this emanation from a penumbra or whatever around free speech. It can't be that property or liberty is, is protected as an absolute, right? And that's how all everything is protected. So that's why last week when I asked the question, is the court going to legalize privacy? And then Craig comes in at the very beginning in the chat room and he says, no, it, it, he's probably right um, because nothing is protected that way. So uh, that's one of the things. Let's see. Uh, oh, Yaron also talked about the Teavana case, and there's a number of articles about the Teavana case. And for those who aren't familiar with it, 
a court has told Starbucks that at least for the time being, it is a stopped, you know, it, it is not allowed to close these unprofitable Teavana stores that they have to keep them open. And there's this pending litigation about whether Starbucks is going to ultimately going to be able to close these unprofitable Teavana stores. And a lot of people are drawing some really, you know, sort of catastrophic conclusions from the fact that the court has held this as an interim matter. And to me, I don't necessarily see it as that catastrophic yet. You'd have to look at the details of the case, but at the injunction stage, it is very typical for a court to just look at two things. First of all, is there any sort of an arguable case that the plaintiff in you know in this situation, the shopping mall or whatever, has against Starbucks? And it could be a, just a contractual case, right? There's some sort of a contractual-based argument where they say, we have a right per the terms of our lease contract to stop Starbucks from closing its store in our mall. Now, if Tavana or not Tavana, but the shopping mall has an arguable case against Starbucks and per the law, you know, typical state law and Starbucks is better able to absorb the cost of error. So for instance, you know, suppose the court says, yeah, Starbucks go ahead and close the store. Maybe later they would ultimately rule that Starbucks didn't have a right to close the store. So they're going to have more of a bias towards keeping the status quo going as an injunction, as a preliminary injunction, while they argue the merits of the case. So like I said, you're going to have to look into the particulars, but I, unless this is a final ruling on the substance, on the merits of it, and then the reason that they're doing it is simply because Starbucks is bigger and they have more money, then no. They're, they're in an injunction stage, if the shopping mall people actually have any sort of an arguable case, then a typical, I would say, rational injunction policy would be to keep things at the status quo until they adjudicate on the merits. Yeah, it's terrible. Now, what you might say is the, the underlying contract law substantively is bad. And, you know, we'd have to look at what sort of claims the you know, are in the underlying substantive case that the shopping mall is making against Starbucks. If the underlying substantive law is bad and the shopping mall shouldn't be able to go to court and hold Starbucks up and even bring this injunction case at all, then we could talk about that. And I'm, I'm completely sympathetic to the idea that contract law is really messed up. It's been pushed also in a leftist anti you know, anti the rich, anti the big corporation agenda, unconscionability and all these disgusting contract doctrines that you can learn if you go to law school. Um, That's a different story. But if it's, you know, suppose there's some wording in the contract about under what conditions Starbucks would be able to close the stores and how quickly and the blah, blah, blah. If there's an, you know, a question of interpretation of the contract and when Starbucks could close it and stuff, then yeah, you can have an injunction. And one of the problems is, of course, how long it takes to complete litigation on stuff like this. That means Starbucks could lose a pile of money. So we can talk about that as well. Um, yeah, Josh says in the chat room, it's argued that losing a high-profile store like Teavana could hurt the foot traffic in the malls and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so there, there could be provisions in the contract that account for the fact that 
it's not just the closing of the store. It's all of the foot traffic. Now, of course, if Teavon is doing really poorly, how good of an argument is that? Who knows? Yeah, Corey, says, uh, who works at Starbucks, says that St- Starbucks has been with Teavana for a while. I'd always get my discount there. They have some good tea. I've tried their tea. It's yummy and everything, but apparently it's just not cutting it in terms of money making. And yes, we would like to be able to see Starbucks, you know, just close and everything else. So all, all I want to say about that is it's an injunction stage, and so you can't necessarily make those, you know, sort of doom and gloom conclusions about what, you know, what state is the law and everything else. Um, good news out there, and, and Yaron was talking about it towards the end of his show yesterday, is that Trump now has recognized Jerusalem, Jerusalem, ugh, Jerusalem, I can say that 12 times fast, Jerusalem, as Israel's capital. And this is something that we should have done a long time ago. I don't know that the Embassy Act from 1995, I don't know whether that act dictated that in addition to moving the embassy, that we are also therefore recognizing Jerusalem as the capital. I guess that's implicit in doing that. But, you know, the Embassy Act is, you know, it was passed in 95. And then every president since then has been delay, 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 not doing this. Finally, Trump does it. Excuse me, does it. He does this thing that should have been done long ago. Israel, they have a right to dictate what their own capital is. So it actually is, but it's been functioning as the capital, as, as Jerome talks about yesterday, there's one question about this, and, and a friend of mine had raised this question. And the question, I mean, there's really two questions. One question is, you can always ask about Trump. Why is he doing this? Is he doing this in any sort of principled way? And in fact, all you have to do is watch the video of Trump announcing this decision, and you can say, well, Trump is not principled about Israel, because he went right on to say after he did this, and this is the right thing to do and everything else, that he is still in favor of trying to negotiate even a two-state solution between Israel and the Palestinians and blah, 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 that, you know, he's on the premise that the, the so-called Palestinians, and I always put that in scare quotes, so I don't give them the time of day, sorry, so-called Palestinians, that they are people that you can actually negotiate with. And the fact that you cannot negotiate with these terrorists um, is shown by some of the reaction that was out there in some of the Mideast countries in, you know, when they saw that Trump was actually going to do this, you know, no president before since 1995 has ever dared to actually do it, even though that embassy act was passed, but here's Trump doing it. And what did they say? New York times had this piece, you know, yesterday, I think it was yesterday. And they said, you know, the middle East, middle Eastern leaders are saying, you know, Oh, it's going to, there's going to be violence in reaction to this. Once they tell you, look, if you do this, this thing that is right to do, uh, there's going to be a lot of violence, then you really better do it, right? Because they're making this ad baculum argument. They're saying, um, my my position that the capital of Israel is not Jerusalem, my position is right. Why? Because there's going to be a whole bunch of violence if you don't agree with me. That was their argument. There's going to be this violence. So, you know, that alone should show you that these people cannot be dealt with. But, you know, what is it? Palestine, Palestine, whatever, Palestinians, the so-called Palestinians, they want Israel to cease to exist. That's part of their doctrine. Israel doesn't have the same for the so-called Palestinians. And 
Ben Shapiro had this great appearance that he did on Fox where he talks about, you know, East versus West Jerusalem. And I'm sorry, I don't know the geography enough to remember which, but in the Israeli controlled part of Jerusalem, if an Arab is walking through there, they're perfectly safe. Nothing will happen to them. If you are an Israeli Jew walking through the Arab controlled part of Jerusalem, your life is at risk. Doesn't that show you in and of itself who should be controlling the whole thing? The, the, the country that respects rights is the one that has the right to control territory. Palestinians, as Yaron was talking about yesterday, do not respect rights in any way, shape, or form, including the right of Israel to peacefully coexist with them. So the fact that Trump spends as much or more time during his little announcement talking about the so-called peace process and there's going to be something that's going to be acceptable to both Israel and the so-called Palestinians and everything else. It shows you that he is not principled on this issue. So there's that problem. Then uh, this friend who was talking about, you know, questioning the timing of this was saying that it happens to be in the Middle East right now that there has been some progress in terms of Israel being able to, start to forge alliances with those countries in the Middle East that oppose Iran, Iran with its nuclear arsenal and theocratic rule that poses a danger to any freedom-loving person in the entire world, Iran, you know them. So if it happens to be that at this particular time, you know, why do it now? It's been not done since 1995. Uh, is there a real push to do it now? We know that Netanyahu he gave an announcement thanking Trump for doing it, but you know, a it's not being done by principled reason if it's being done by Trump, and b does it happen to be at a particular juncture in time where maybe it'd be best to hold off just a little to allow Israel to continue to form these alliances with the enemies of Iran, which apparently there's been some progress on that front. Not that we get that so much in our news but I've seen some of that news here in, in the United States. So just a question, uh, but it is, it's the right thing to do, right? I mean, there's no question this is the right thing to do. It, it should have been done long ago. We should have recognized the, the capital. Israel has a right to declare the capital. We should recognize it. I, you know, Yaron was talking about on his podcast yesterday, his passport, because he was born in Jerusalem, doesn't even say Israel. That's how, you know, they're not allowed to say that. It's just Jerusalem. Who knows, right? What country? So, um, anyway, so good, good Trump, but not principled and maybe not a, a great time. What else do I have here? I've only got eight minutes left. Let me see what else I can get through. Uh, Gorsuch, uh, there's a great article talking about Gorsuch's discussion of property rights in the oral argument in Carpenter. I've gone through and I've looked at Gorsuch's discussion, both with the ACLU attorney and the government attorney, and he talks about property in, you know, the actual sense of property. Uh, they're in tort. They have this thing called conversion. So if something is your property and somebody wrongfully takes it and brings it into their own possession, they commit this tort called conversion. And so Gorsuch was going down that path. For me, I would say the tort that you might want to talk about, the state law tort that you would want to talk about, would not be conversion of property so much as tortious interference with contract. Um, and in the oral argument, 
there was some discussion about the property at stake, if there is property, is it really the consumer's property anyway? Because it's actually the, you know, the cell phone data is property. If it's property, it's property created by the phone company, by the cell phone service provider. So this is why I wouldn't go down that road. I would rather talk about contract rights, but you know, will Gorsuch ever get to contract rights as a means to protect our property, something that you can do so within the constitution I'm not too optimistic about that, but it's nice to see him bringing up that line of questioning about property protecting privacy. That's what Scalia was doing. That's what we hope he would do. But will he go further and look at the role of contract there? Don't know. I put a link to my piece at the objective standard talking about that contract based solution that I have to the issue in Carpenter. Again, if you can share it around maybe get it under the eyes of a Gorsuch clerk at a certain point, that would be wonderful because really I think that's the direction that they've got to go. If they, if they want to solve this in a, in a principled, an article about smoking bans recently slate published a piece about the fact that we have apparently used terrible science to justify smoking bans. Secondhand smoke isn't nearly as dangerous as people thought. And so therefore when they banned smoking in pool halls, which is the only place I've really have, smoke very much at all uh, you go you know you play pool you want to drink a beer and smoke a cigarette just kind of like it all goes together maybe you know a few cigarettes here there but that's the one place like in public I wouldn't want to smoke at dinner for example but I would like to go and play pool and have a cigarette that I pretend to smoke at least right so you can't do that anymore and this article is apparently saying it's all for nothing is it all for nothing you know, uh, we could talk about that, right? A lot of these science articles aren't that good. Uh, but isn't it sad that you can't do these things anymore? Yeah, let's ventilate the places. Let's let the market decide these things. But instead, no, the big heavy hand of government comes down and tells you what you can and can't do. I gave you a link to Rob Wolf. And this is just, you know, for your own edification to look at something I'm looking at again. I remembered him talking about this, what was it, a year ago or something. Nicotine. So yeah, smoking is bad in terms of the cigarette smoke being bad for your lungs, but nicotine itself is something like caffeine that you could conceivably use in a moderate way and enhance your ability to focus and work well. Rob Wolf swears by it. You can go ahead and read what he says in that piece there. Ah, the tax stuff, right? Okay, so McConnell, the latest is he's making a concession. You could deduct more of your local taxes. It's probably going to pass, and it's going to be reconciled in a certain way. But we have to pass it to find out what's in it. Sound familiar? And so that whole idea that we don't know what's in this and if it's really going to result in a tax cut, especially over the long term because of all the debt they're going to generate, it inspired, in my mind, a term – obfuscocracy, obfuscocracy, or you could say obfuscatocracy is, an, is another suggestion that people say that it's rule by obfuscation. They rule us by basically obfuscating in terms of what's the nature of the law that they're using to, to rule us. So enjoy that if you, if you do. The latest on the Russia scandals, Flynn said that the Russian sanctions would be ripped up. There's a whistleblower, but it's an anonymous whistleblower who said that, you know, Flynn assured uh, some company that the Russian sanctions would be ripped up. Not only did he stand to benefit personally from some business dealings that would 
be able to take place because the Russian sanctions were ripped up. That business dealing involved building nuclear power plants in the Middle East. So I don't know if this is true, but, you know, some guy who's in the Trump administration benefiting from, you know, Russian sanctions being ripped up and building nuclear power plants in the Middle East, it's pretty gross. So I've got the meme from Benjamin in there. Deplorable nothing burgers for the entire house. Is this another nothing burger? A lot of people knee jerk will say, yeah, it's just a nothing burger. We don't know. We'll find out. I always have, you know, I'm, I'm waiting to see. What I don't like is if they're creating a whole bunch of nothing burgers. And yes, we're the ones buying it. Uh, I have a link that you can use to donate to people who are suffering from Southern California fires right now. It's a real thing. Apparently, that's a real organization that can help. And then finally, in the program notes, I have St. Vincent, Digital Witness. It's just one of her songs. I would suggest, you know, kind of exploring the catalog. Thanks to Stephen Bork for suggesting it. This particular song is quite clever. It's sort of an analog to Katy Perry's Chain to the Rhythm. Notably, St. Vincent asked, is What's the point of even sleeping, in essence, if no one's there to be watching you while you're sleeping, if you can't post about it and stuff? Is, so she, she sings about, you know, she stops sleeping and everything else. This is clever stuff. I, I kind of see a lot of what she does is a cross between Kate Bush and either, in some songs, sort of like Crowded House, in some songs, Prince. Uh, other favorites are Black Rainbow, um, Cruel is another good one, and then also Hang On Me. So check her out. There's a lot of great sound, you know, as I said, at your fingertips on YouTube, you can check out a new artist for free and get yourself into a whole different world. So enjoy that, everybody. I will be back here next week, 3 p.m. Eastern time, noon Pacific time. Take care.